Open up your Bibles to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. We've covered a great deal of ground in the book of Romans. We go verse by verse uh, over the past several months. Uh, for those of you that have not been here, I'll give you a little bit of background about the book of Romans. Uh, it was written by a guy by the name of the uh, Paul, an apostle Paul is what we call him. He was originally a Jew who was uh, uh, excelling in Judaism, and he came to know Jesus Christ in a face-to-face miraculous encounter on the road to Damascus, and in that, uh, it changed his life forever, and God called him to a ministry in which he was ministering to both Jews and Gentiles. For those of you that don't have a, a biblical background, that basically means everybody. And as he was doing that, uh, he planted churches and encouraged different churches. And so there were two churches, we believe, more than likely involved in this letter to Rome. One, the church that was hosting Paul at the time he wrote it. We believe that to be a city called Corinth, where there were churches there. At that time, it was in their homes. Corinth is in modern-day Greece. And so from there, he was writing a letter, and they didn't have the post office back then, so it took a while. And he was writing to a church in Rome From our uh, knowledge of the letter, he'd never been there and had never met them. Again, travel was not easy, and and letters were difficult. So there wasn't a lot of communication in this uh, letter to the the church at Rome, uh, kept in our scriptures as the word of God. He explained some very deep theology, as what we would call it. In Paul's um, terminology, he just is explaining how God has worked in the world uh, and is dealing with both Jews and Gentiles uh, at his, in his day and age. And there were some great questions that were going on, specifically that we're going to address here in just a moment in Romans chapter 10, was this idea that uh, the Messiah, this Jesus, who was coming to save the world, who was prophesied in the Old Testament and would be a fulfillment of all the law, he was of the lineage of Abraham. Uh, of the Jews. And so the question in in Paul's day that was so difficult and they were wrestling with was, well, if this Messiah is really who he said he was, if Jesus was really the savior of the world, why is it that so many Jews are not believing in him? Why have so many of them rejected him? And so last week we looked at some of the reasoning behind that, and the apostle Paul explains that But here we get to a very short passage of scripture that we're going to cover, but we're going to delve deep into Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. So let's read it this morning. He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them. So the brothers here he's referring to is the church there in Rome. And the reason why I point that out is because in this book, he's addressing Jews and Gentiles, and sometimes he defines the Jews brothers according to the flesh. So he's using this word in a number of ways. Here he's in the context. He's clearly speaking to the church, the believers, made up of both Jews and Gentiles, by the way. He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, you might not think that's going to take a lot of time to unpack, but it, it, it does take some time because I believe this is probably one of the most, if not the most central reasons 
why people reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news. And so it, it really comes down to submission, but before we get there, let's begin to break it down verse by verse. The apostle Paul starts out, he says, brothers. In other words, when you become a believer in Jesus Christ, when you trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, if you don't have a religious background, you've heard people call brothers, sisters, that sort of thing, that was terminology that, that was taken from the Old Testament and applied to the new ecclesia or the called out ones or the church that's gathering. And so many of the Old Testament terms are applied to New Testament believers. And so the Apostle Paul is calling fellow believers who have trusted in Jesus Christ as brothers and sisters. This becomes very important because as Jesus spoke, he says, you will be known for your love for one another if you're truly a disciple of mine. And so the group in here today that if you claim to follow Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the people around you are your brothers and sisters in Christ. And that carries with it a great deal of weight. There's an expectation by God revealed in the scriptures that you love one another. And I know that can be difficult because I'm your pastor and I'm hard to love sometimes, right? It's, it's hard. But of all things, we ought to have love for one another if we claim to, to call Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. So he says here, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. And for those of you that have a biblical background or a church background, this idea of being saved, that's not no big deal. You use it so much that it's this common vernacular that you really don't even think about it twice. But if you're visiting here today and you've never thought about anything biblical, that sounds really crazy. What are we saved from? What is this all about? Well, a quick rundown from a biblical worldview is simply this, that God created the world and everything was perfect. Mankind rebelled and sinned and there, therefore fell from God's grace. And judgment occurred. And that judgment was both present and active in the life of those individuals, but there will be a final judgment to come. Now, if you're sitting here and, and you go, well, I've heard that, Scott, I've been in church all my life. I appreciate the fact that you can say amen and you understand that. But as we're called to make disciples, whether it's at work or at home, you have to be able to explain that to people. Just what I just said there. You have to give a nutshell summary of the Bible because no one's going to let you do a Bible study from Genesis to Revelation while you're in the coffee room, right? That doesn't really work. So you need to be able to explain what went on and, and how it worked. So mankind fell. God had a plan, though, to save mankind. He did not want to just destroy him immediately and wipe him from the face of the earth. So as the Bible unfolds and God reveals himself to mankind and his work and his plan of salvation, this idea of being saved is in full force when Jesus arrives on the scene approximately 2,000 years ago. The path to salvation was not works, it was not doing stuff, it was simply a gift of God. By his grace, he gave us salvation in the act of Jesus Christ, being born of a virgin, living a perfect sinless life, and willingly laying down his life for your sins, my sins, and the sins of the whole world. He died on the cross, was buried and raised again on the third day. And he defeated sin, death, and hell. And so today, we have the opportunity to not only have our sins forgiven, but live a life free from the power of sin 
just simply by trusting in him as our Savior and following him as Lord. It's that simple. It is a complete gift, a work of grace through faith, and that's it. So that is what we're saved from, and that is what we're saved for. And if you can articulate that, or if you can even practice that and really understand where that comes from, it will help you make disciples. But the Apostle Paul here specifically says, I have this great heart's desire and prayer for them. I want to encourage you as far as application of the day, if you're thinking, well, this is all about salvation and I'm already saved, so I'm good, I can just sit here. No, I want to encourage you, pray for and love your friends who don't know the Lord. That is one of the greatest things that you can do is lift them up. The power of prayer, prayer is simply calling out and crying out to God individually and asking God for a variety of things. And the greatest thing he desires is for people to be saved. That is his love, that is is his desire, but we have to make a choice. Verse 2, and this is where this choice begins to, to unfold. He says, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They have this incredible zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Now, they were knowledgeable. They had been educated in a lot of areas. The problem was, let's read this in full here, not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God. They're not stupid. Ignorant isn't a slanderous term here. It's just the the term in Greek is specifically, they didn't know. They didn't get it. He says, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own. Now, they didn't get it, but they've moved on here to a willful decision to do something different at this point, seeking to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. So let's back up. Verse 2, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Many of you know this, that at one time I wanted to be a pilot, and in college I had had a a signed uh, contract with the Marine Corps to go in the Marine Corps to fly uh, planes, and I went to officer cadet school and all that, but it started out at a very young age. I loved flying, even though I'd never flown. We weren't very rich growing up, so I never had the chance, but I watched a lot of TV. I lived in front of the TV. Parents, don't let your kids watch TV. My whole life is distorted from growing up watching TV. You got some re- really weird stuff there, but here's one of the weird things I thought. I thought all pilots were young, and you could just jump in the plane, and you could do whatever you want. You could go zipping around. You could do loop-de-loops. You could do all sorts of stuff. That was my knowledge from watching, like, TV and old war movies. I thought, man, and I knew all about planes. So when I got old enough and I took my first plane ride, I was excited. My parents thought I was going to be scared, and I wasn't. I was enjoying it. The next time, they thought, great, he enjoyed it. We're going to introduce him to the pilot. And so they walked me in, as maybe some of you do with their kids, and they showed me in the cockpit, and I was like in awe. This is great. All the instruments everywhere. This is the greatest plane ever. It's better than those World War II planes. And then I looked to the left, and they said, this is your captain. And it was an old geezer with white hair. I mean, I was a kid. That's what I thought. And I was freaked out. I thought, this guy is an idiot. Because on the TV shows, captain, that was like a lowly officer rank, right? The guys with white hairs were like general and admiral, and I knew the rank system even as a kid. And this guy was so old, and he only made it up to captain, I was thinking. I was like, I'm going to die. And then what really freaked me out, he was trying to be nice. He goes, come here, son. Come on over here. I'm going to show you some stuff. And he goes, here, I want to show you my checklist. And I was like, what's a checklist? I never saw that in the movies. 
And he's going, here, this is what we do to fly the plane. When we get in here, we go through all these lists. We check each one of these off. This is the one that, that makes sure we turn on the flaps, and this is the one where we turn on the engines. And I'm going, oh, my goodness. I got the bottom of the barrel, the student that was held back. This guy is an absolute moron. I've watched my mom get in a car, and she does not need a checklist to drive the car. This guy is about to fly our plane, and he doesn't even know or can remember to turn the plane on? That is nuts. This guy is an absolute idiot. And so we go back, and I am freaked out. I've, got the, I've just got the claw on, on the, you know, the little armrest. You've seen people like that. And my mom didn't really understand what was going on, and I never really told her. But the whole time, I was like, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. He forgot to turn on the fuel. He forgot to put down the landing gear. It was crazy, right? And so I had this great zeal for flying. I thought I knew everything about flying, but I didn't have the knowledge. And there's a really important understanding that you have to have in flying. The checklist isn't because people are stupid. It's because it's extremely important because what you're about to embark on is a life or death adventure. And you can't miss a single step. If you do, it could be fatal. So when you're looking at important life or death situations, a little knowledge is great, but you have to go above and beyond and search out the truth and to be careful to examine it all, both rationally and thoughtfully and looking at it through an exam of seriousness of life or death scenario. So I want to encourage you, if you've never looked at the gospel before, to look at it perhaps through a lens, not through zeal or through emotion, and we're going to talk about that in a minute, but through knowledge. And he says in verse 3, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Well, what is going on here? Um, one of the questions that's often posed, and a guy that I listen to occasionally is a guy by the name of J. Warren Wallace. I've mentioned him before. He's a retired L.A. homicide detective who was an atheist for many years. He came to, to examine the evidence of Christianity, and he came to believe in Jesus Christ. And now he goes around and has a number of shows and books that he talks about why it is people believe or don't believe. And one of the questions he gets so often is, why don't more people believe in Jesus Christ or Christianity if the evidence is really so good? And the answer is twofold. Number one, actually a lot of people do believe in God. That was the, the idea. It wasn't just Christianity, but why don't people believe in God? His statistics that he shared, of all the people on the planet, approximately 4 billion people have some belief in a God. Not a Christian God, but of, of some God. He said that's approximately 75 or 73 percent of the people on planet Earth believe in some sort of God. So, yeah, quite a, people, quite a few people actually do believe. Well, why don't people specifically believe in Christianity? Well, you have to understand the nature of belief. There's three kinds of belief he describes. One is rational belief. One is emotional belief. And one is volitional belief. 
Let's talk about rational belief for a second. I just told you I was traveling, or I implied uh, that uh, I used my plane illustration. Anytime I travel, you get plane illustrations. You got to cut me some slack there. So I'm sitting on the plane, and I'm looking, and I'm looking around on the plane, and I'm realizing something just hit me. I'm an idiot. And I say that because I chose my plane because of convenience and because of cost. Is that a rational decision? Well, let's think about this. I kind of value my life, right? I think you do as well. I've spent my whole life investing in different things, knowing people. I have a goal. I've got some things I want to do. So everything that I've ever done has been built up. And I'm about to get on a big mechanical beast filled with flammable fuel and go traveling across the country through the air and I made that decision on which flight was a few bucks cheaper and which flight was the most convenient, that was emotional. Rational would have been to say, which airline has the safest record, right? Which airline has the best pilots? Not the pilots that graduated from like Votech. I want the guys that graduated from the best pilot school, whatever that is. And which airplane has the best safety record? Not all airplanes are the safest. But in my emotional state of making decisions, I chose to believe that all of that was equal. But that's just simply not true. That's not factual. And so the rational side sits down and examines the evidence and looks at those things that are weighted and most important and thinks through them. The emotional side just looks at whatever you like, whatever is most convenient. And so when people believe or disbelieve something, they're not always rational. As a matter of fact, even rational people have times of complete irrationality, right? If you're married, ladies, you know that. You have husbands. We're not always rational. We do crazy stuff. It's like, I'm going to spend $30,000 on a bass boat. That's, that's not rational, right? The little fishies can be attacked by a $10 or $100 John boat or something, right? But, but rationality goes out the window, especially if you've gotten back from hunting and you start figuring out how much that elk actually cost you. But we're talking emotion there. But then lastly, we're dealing with volition. They're saying, he's saying here, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God. That's okay. It's okay to be ignorant of stuff. We all are ignorant of stuff. I'm ignorant of a lot of stuff. But the question is, do you want to remain there? And as you investigate it, do you deal with the facts? Or, as he says here, in seeking to establish their own, referring to the righteousness. Seeking to establish their own. Wallace says this in describing volitional decisions. He says, the more likely a truth claim is to require a change in someone's behavior the less likely someone will accept it and admit the error of their past. The more likely a truth claim is to require a change in someone's behavior, the less likely someone will accept it and admit the error of their past. He uses his own father as an example who is a committed naturalist and atheist. When you are confronted with truth that requires a change in your behavior, sometimes we make a choice to reject that truth regardless of what we know. 
Good example, Dave Ramsey, any of you have been through Financial Peace, they're having actually a smart money uh, live stream video at the Harvest Church that you're invited to on Tuesday. Uh, we'll, we'll just cover that right now. We made the announcement. We don't have to announce that later. I'll remember it. Well, he d- describes people have, who have made stupid financial decisions. Anyone made any of those lately? Yeah, we've all made them. But we want to defend our stupid def- uh, financial decisions. Like, if someone talks about it, like, I don't care. That stock really made sense. I, I really believe that someday they were going to come up with feather truck tires, and that, that was going to be a booming stock, right? It, it just didn't work out, right? We want to defend our stupid stuff. Uh, I've had people laying in the hospital, dying of lung cancer, and they're going, they're, they're trying to explain to me that they had quit smoking for six weeks and it really didn't work out, and, and, and it, they shouldn't be blamed for that, right? They, they tried, but it didn't work, and you know what? I'm not to blame. That's volitional. We make certain decisions that we know go against the truth, but we decide to do it anyway. And sometimes it's based on emotions. But the biggest issue is this idea of change or submission. The title of our sermon is Submission Required. He says, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Well, what in the world is God's righteousness? You can either turn with me to Romans chapter 1, verses 15 through 16, or you can listen. Your choice. This is how the Apostle Paul described and opened up the scene in the book of Romans about righteousness. It's not self-righteousness, but righteousness. In Romans chapter 1, verse 15 through 16, he says, So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you, also who, uh, to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. There's a lot of that going around today. Paul wasn't. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. From faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteousness of God is in Jesus Christ, not our own self-righteousness, and it is achieved through faith. And as you trust in God by faith, you live that faith out. It's not just saying, I believe in this, and then walking away. It's living it out. And that's the challenge part. That's this idea of coming to a point in a decision of submission. Now, it's been a while. Many of you have asked and requested this. Some of you have said, please don't ever show this again. But my favorite illustration in my life, uh, we don't have kids, is Patches the Wonder Dog. This is Patches the Wonder Dog, if you've not met Patches the Wonder Dog. She is an incredible dog. We call her Patches the Wonder Dog for a reason. Uh, This is a video. We're going to start it here in just a second. Patches the Wonder Dog is incredible at submitting. She is really, really good. Uh, This is her starting out, and just about now, all right, go ahead and and hit it, Tara. All right, good. Watch her. This is me saying, sit. Did you see it? She's fast. She did it. That was my command. All right, watch this. This is me saying, come. There she goes. Did you see it? Incredible, right? And this is her saying nothing. No, that is Patches the Wonder Dog. That is her response Whenever I say sit, come, go. Now, she's not an evil dog, right? You can see she's a pretty friendly-looking dog. You come over to my house, she'll lick you to death, she'll play, but she doesn't listen to me at all. And I've been told by you people that actually know how to train animals that here's the deal. You have to get them to submit, and you don't beat a dog into submission. What I've done with, with Patches the Wonder Dog as of late, it's really interesting. 
when I come home, she'll greet me because she loves all people, and I'll just simply crouch down like this where there's an area for her underneath my knees if she wants to come, but she actually has to crouch down and submit. And she'll be bouncing around, she'll look at me, she'll come racing, and she knows if she submits, she's going to get petting and she's going to get a goodie. And she loves both of those. But she's looking around, she's looking at me, deciding, do I come, do I go, kind of like that little look. She's looking at other stuff. She's looking at my wife, like, do I really have to do this? She's looking at squirrels, looking for birds. And finally she comes back. She'll put her little tail between her legs, and she'll get down, and she'll crouch underneath me. And all of a sudden, once she gets there, her little tail starts wagging. She starts licking. She's the happiest dog ever because she knows once she's under me, she's safe. I'm going to take care of her. I'm going to pet her. She's going to get a goodie. But immediately, it's like something catches her attention, and she's gone. She's out bouncing around. She hasn't quite learned the art of submission on a regular basis. That's her pretty much standard pose right there. All right, we don't have to see any more Apaches the Wonder Dog. But here's the challenge. I don't know about you and, and your life and me and my life. Uh, I, I can tell you, submission in this culture is a four-letter word. You even bring that up in a public setting that someone should submit, people will automatically get ready to fight. They will not submit to anyone or anything other than themselves. But submission can be a good thing if you have a heavenly father who loves you, who knows you, who created you, who has a purpose for you, who despite all the crazy evil stuff that mankind can do, will love you, will forgive you, will wipe all that away, will forgive you, and use you for his glory as he seeks to conform your behavior, your heart, who you are, to reflect him. It's not about where you go. It's not about the stuff that you do. All of that flows out of that relationship and that submission to your heavenly father. But that's a tough decision to make. Because everything in us, the Bible says, we are rebellious, we are sinners by nature. And though we might know the truth, it's hard to accept it. And it's really harder to think about living it out. If you're talking to friends or family, and you've really thought about why it is they're rejecting God, whether it's your work or just people that you're talking to in a normal conversation, it will almost always get down to this. Almost always. They'll say stuff like, I believe Jesus was a nice guy. He was probably a good teacher. I believe this and that. But then they'll say, but I just don't believe that. And I believe this. And then you start asking them why. And what you'll discover is most of their beliefs are beliefs that they have created or have not examined factually and evidentially. What they're doing is saying, I'm not going to submit that says that I have to behave or become this. I'm going to choose for myself how I want to live out. And I'm going to find something that fits that. You deal with that in teenagers as they're discovering life and trying to decide what they're doing and where they're going. 
it's all about what they want because they've lived their life under their parents and now they're entering a world and they finally get to make some decisions. So the idea of submission is a four-letter word to many of them. Well, he doesn't stop there. He says this in verse 4, closing. He says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, this can be a controversial verse for a variety of reasons because the Apostle Paul uses law a lot. But here he specifically says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So he's referencing believers here and how the law is working together. What does the law represent in the life of a believer? He's not dealing with the misunderstanding or the misuse of the law by some of the individuals that he discussed earlier in the letter. To understand what this, this really this picture is, please read back or step back with me to Romans chapter 9 and listen to his language here. Listen to the words that he uses because he's about to paint a picture of a race, of a path, of a endurance, of a almost like a marathon in our modern day, beginning in chapter 9, verse 30. He says, what then, or what shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, so we're getting this picture of pursuing, of racing, of this competition, uh, the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the law. So the imagery here is racing and, and going in a particular direction and trying to reach something. And in verse 32, he says, why? Because they did not pursue, once again, it by faith, but as if it, as it were, or as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. So we're racing, we're trying to pursue, we're trying to achieve, we're trying to get to the end or to the goal, but they've stumbled. And he says, behold, I am laying in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the idea is that you want to complete the race, that you don't want to stumble and fall short. Anyone here ever go to elementary school? I hope you did. I hope you actually made it there. Well, I went to elementary school, and I was racing one time. I don't even remember what it was. It wasn't like track. In elementary school, you don't have things like that. They just like some old coach that doesn't want to move around goes, run to the end of the field and back, you know, trying to make little kids burn off energy. So I'm racing, I'm racing, and I stumble and I fall. And I was normally, I was actually fast as a kid, and I just face plant it into the dirt. And I get up, and I'm trying not to cry because the girls that I like are hanging around. I'm trying to be manly about it, but I can't really get going again. And, and they all beat me to the end, and they race back, and I just I give up, and I walk away. And the coach just berated me for not finishing the race. He made me feel embarrassed, even though I fell, because I didn't finish the race. Well, here we, we get to the idea of actually finishing the race and not being embarrassed. In verse 4 of chapter 10, he says, For Christ is the end of the law. He's not describing the law being thrown out or kicked aside. Uh, in the uh, book of Matthew, Jesus says, Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So the law was to be fulfilled by Jesus. It was to point people to a particular person. It was a 
a, a, it had a purpose of reaching the end of something. Well, I don't know about you, but uh, I try to do pretty well financially. I do all the Dave Ramsey stuff. Uh, but uh, one thing that I haven't really followed him on, and I will be, is financial investment. Uh, Judy really got upset with me uh, Tuesday morning before we left. Uh, it wasn't though we were getting up early just to go travel. It was the fact is that Judy gets up early every morning, and we weren't leaving for quite a while, yet I was up at 6 o'clock in the morning on a phone call. Now, if you know me, I can barely pronounce my name at 6 o'clock in the morning. So why would I get up at 6 o'clock in the morning for a phone call? Well, I had to discuss my performance of my retirement plan with my financial advisor, and he's in Central Standard Time, and he said, oh, no, we can talk when you get back. And I'd seen some stuff that was concerning, and so I said, no, we're talking before I leave. So at 6 a.m. in the morning, I'm talking to my financial advisor, and he's explaining me, explaining to me, all the reasons why my stock was not performing as it should, because we're in like the best stock market ever, and I am making virtually nothing. And I put the money with them because I knew that I could make nothing on my own. I didn't need their help for that. So he's doing all these, these cartwheels and all these you know, explanations, and, and he's just talking in circles. And I go, finally, I go, hey, you know what? I'm a pretty simple guy. Just cut to the chase. And he goes, well, here's my goal. I want you invested in blue chip stocks that we're going to buy at a discounted rate. They're going to give you a good dividend and a good return on investment. And over the long haul, they're going to pay you money. And I said, but I don't get that money now, right? Because I'm not seeing anything. He goes, no, no, no. But that's the goal. And I didn't say anything because it finally clicked in my mind. My goal and his goal were different. You see, my goal at the age of retirement, it, it's a real simple goal. It's to eat. That's it. It really is. Timothy says, if you have food and clothing, you should be content. Now, if I'm at age 65 and I can't eat, well, I'm not worried about clothing. I'll be at the grocery store. I might be naked, but that's your problem. I'm going to be there, and I'm trying to eat. That's all I want. And when I arrive at the, the cash register, the little girl there at that time She's not going to want to hear about my blue chick stocks and, and how great a philosophy I have of, of buying cheap and getting dividends. She's going to want money. And if I don't have money, she's going to kick me out of the way for the little old lady behind me might you know, run over me with her cart. I've got to have money. And so my goal was to eat. His goal was some sort of philosophy. And so... The whole point of the Old Testament had a specific goal in mind. And if your goal is not its goal, then you have to realize that it is your goal. You have to own it. If your goal is something, you have to realize you've made it up. And you have to deal with the consequences of that. But biblically, the New Testament lays it out. The Old Testament has an end in mind. And here it is. He says... For Christ is the end of law of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In Romans 3, 19 through 25, it says this. Now we know that uh, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable by God. For the works of the law of no man uh, being, wait, let's back that up. For by works of the law, no human being, 
will be justified in his sight. So the, the working of the law and observing it, nope, you don't get justified in that way. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So the more you try to, to do the law, the more knowledgeable you become about sin and God's standard. Verse 21, he says, For now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all of sin and falling short of the glory of God. There is a righteousness of God, and it's not in the law. It is in Jesus Christ alone. Not in your works, not in me, not in the church. And then he closes with, for all who believe. I'll close with this last illustration. The idea of belief. I discovered belief is not what I thought it was when I was flying on that plane. You see, Southwest Airlines, the, the airline that I went on with a cheap rate, they actually have some new planes. And right now, the model of plane they have, uh, actually, on a particular aisle, they've removed the seat. So if you can get in the seat next to the window, next or behind that aisle, you get leg room. It's like living in first class for the whole flight. So I got on that. But that particular seat is right next to the wing. And so as we're pulling out onto the tarmac, have you ever noticed the pilot comes over the intercom and he, he's giving instructions, but he's very curt. He's very stern and he's very businesslike. He's not just joking around talking about the football game or the weather on where you're going. He's like, all right, buckle up. We're getting ready to go. Uh, you know, uh, flight attendants, take your seat. You know, he's not nice to them. And so he's sitting there. And I realized what I'm paying all my money for. I'm paying my money to the airline for guts. That's it. Pure guts. Because think about it. As the, the airline or the airplane takes off down the runway, the wing starts doing this. This is a huge metal wing, and I'm looking like, that shouldn't be doing that. That should, Metal should not be able to do that, right? And it's bouncing up and down, but I'm, I'm just having a, a good time because it had been a long time since I'd set over a wing of an airplane, and I'd not seen that before. And I'm like, this is really cool. This is a cool deal to get out to, to see that. And then I realized in my mind, I wonder what the pilot is seeing right now. And so think about it from the pilot's perspective. Flying an airplane is, flying an airplane is, is fun. The idea of it was, especially as a kid. As a matter of fact, if you're flying, you know, 30,000 feet and the, the, the pilot comes on and says, hey, would anyone like to come up here and take the wheel for a little while and try it out? You'd be people, have people like, yeah, that sounds cool. That's a really cool pilot. I'll try it out. We're, we're not going to crash the plane at 30,000 feet. So flying really isn't all that big of a deal. And quite frankly, landing, that's a scary thought. But if you're flying, you've got to get down. And if the, the stewardess comes on over the intercom and says, you know, the pilot's dead. He had a heart attack. Can anyone land the plane? You're like, eh, I'll give it a shot. Worst thing, what, how bad can it be, right? We're going to die or maybe not die. We got to do it. I'll get up there and give it a try, right? You might have a few volunteers on the plane. But the takeoff, you're sitting there as the pilot right at the end of one, one runway, and you're looking all the way down at the other, and you know what you're sitting in. Millions of pounds, it seems like, of steel and, and hundreds of people behind you with their lives dependent upon you, full of jet fuel. You begin to race the engines to get them up to speed, and you're thinking, do I believe that this plane is actually going to fly? 
because you can see, literally see death waiting for you at the end of the runway. And you have to make the decision to push the, thro- the throttle all the way forward and go as fast as you can, hurtling yourself and everyone with you towards death. You really are. Because that's what's going to happen. Because you have to believe that this plane is going to fly. And so the rest of the stuff, the flying and the landing, you don't really have a choice. But the takeoff, do you really believe? Do you have the guts? If someone asks you to sit up there and go, yeah, go ahead and push that throttle. I'd be like, all right, let's do it. And I'd take off. And we'd be cruising. And we'd be hitting about 60, 70, 100 miles an hour. And I'm like, this is really cool. But as the, the tarmac began to be eaten up by, by this plane that's traveling so fast and the runway becomes shorter and shorter and death is coming at you closer and closer, would you throttle it back? Or would you just push it all the way and pull back on the stick? That takes faith. It takes a lot of faith. I'm not sure I could be a pilot, to be honest with you. I'm glad I'm a pastor. But you truly do have to believe when it comes to life and death situations. You don't have a choice to believe or not to believe. You are alive. Unless Jesus comes back, you're going to die. The question is, what do you believe about that death? Do you believe there's life after death? What happens? Do you rely on the stuff that you make up? Your own beliefs as they were doing? Or do you search it out volitionally and maybe emotionally, but rationally as well? What is the evidence for life after death? Well, I believe Christianity is the only thing that can stand up to those questions. I encourage you, if you don't believe in here, to search it out, to research it, to read it yourself. Does it make sense? Does it stand up in the light of scrutiny? But, After all that is said and done, it still takes belief. We are called to live by faith, not by sight. There is going to be a step of faith that you must make. Will you make it is the big question. And if you've already made it, will you live it out each and every day? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I just thank you so very much for an incredible day. I thank you again for those that are here. Uh, Whatever they may be struggling with in in a group this size, there are always struggles. I pray your Holy Spirit would just move in their hearts and minds, that you would comfort them, uh, guide them towards your truth, your word, uh, your promises, Father. Lord, uh, use this church and this community. Uh, Help us to love one another. Help us to love others. Help us to speak the truth unashamed. And at the same time, to do it wisely and caring. Uh, Lord, uh, we just thank you for your grace in our lives. In Christ's name I pray.